0: America's car culture seems inevitably headed down a one-way street toward an electrical future. But in some respects, we may find ourselves headed the wrong way down that one-way street. More and more EVs are being designed and manufactured by many of the world's major car makers. But if you look at how these vehicles are promoted, they seem less about their environmental friendliness and more about their speed and power. One of our guests this morning has some serious concerns about the direction America's EV revolution is headed and some ideas on what it, what makes more sense. Also, we're coming off what seemed in this area to be a down year for monarch butterflies and the concerns about the honeybee population are persistent. Pollinator-friendly habitat is key for species like these to survive and thrive. It's Saturday, February 18th, 2023, and today on River Radio we explore two critical environmental questions. Did America's EV revolution take a wrong turn? And are we making progress with pollinators?
1: Come down.
0: Coming to you from our studios in beautiful Midtown Marina on St. Croix, bordering the wild and scenic St. Croix River. This is River Radio. I'm Jim Maher, and I'm Gail Knutsen. River Radio is presented by the Marine Community Library, which is located on the traditional, ancestral, and contemporary homelands of Dakota and Anishinaabe peoples. The program is produced by Jim and Gail. Matt Quast is our technical director. Elaine Larson and Laura Lee D. Lorenzo handle our website and publicity.
2: And Chan Poling in the Suburbs provide the theme song. On today's program, we'll be talking with David Zipper, a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School, where he focuses on transportation issues, and Lori Schneider, founder and executive director of the Pollinator Friendly Alliance.
0: And I want to mention David joins us fresh off an appearance on CNN the other day, so it's great to have him. Hi to all of you listening to our live recording today on Zoom and Marine Fan Supporter and Booster page on Facebook. And of course, thanks to all who regularly listen to our podcasts. Well, it's uh, President's Day weekend, so a long weekend for a lot of people. And I want to thank uh, Matt again for all the work he put into our last show with a surprise closing segment that uh, that caught us off guard for sure. Uh, we appreciate being acknowledged by the City of Marine, and uh, we uh, also want to recognize the work that Matt did because it took a lot to pull that together for our last show. And also Laura Lee DiLorenzo, who spurred him on to pull it off?
2: Yeah, and we appreciate all the kind comments that uh, were provided by our friends on last the last show, and also by those who have congratulated us in person or by email. So thanks so much; it, it means a lot.
0: And I I went over and made sure to unplug Matt's microphone so he doesn't surprise us again this week.
2: <laughs> oh, he just loves to oh, see. Look at he, <laughs> Oh, he's,
0: he's still just, doing it. Okay, he's got a
2: lot of buttons. <laughs>
0: Well, there's been a lot of news since the last time we did the show two weeks ago. Um, We had the spy balloon saga and all the mystery surrounding the other objects that were shot out of the sky. Uh, The war in Ukraine is about to reach a one-year anniversary. And maybe the most heart-wrenching is the earthquake in Turkey and Syria with so many dead and some amazing rescues. And and Gail, I I know you watch that with a lot of interest, too, because you've had a lot of experience with national disaster relief.
2: Yeah, I've I've done some national disaster relief and four major um, disasters. Um, I was at Hurricane Katrina um, in the fall of 2005 and later at Ike and the Fargo flood, and then Hurricane Sandy. And it's amazing the logistics to feed all the people that survived the disaster but are homeless. So, And that's that's three meals a day. There was one hangar I worked at where they fed 6,000 people three times a day. So it's amazing the number of people that get displaced, but also that you have to provide for.
0: And I can imagine in a a scene like we're in, well, I mean, even in Turkey, you can see the challenges, but of course in Syria, it's like, um, you know, the the exponentially different than what you were experiencing here. At least, at least you weren't dealing with borders and war zones and things like that. So, Um,
2: yes, that's right. We weren't. uh, We had our own issues at one point, which. Um, You know, we had actually deal with the Ku Klux Klan when we were in Texas. So down there. So that was that was kind of an amazing story sometime. I'll tell more. But
0: yeah, amazing indeed. Well, let's uh, let's end our opening segment on a lighter note. Uh, True first world problem for us was having to wait for season three of Ted Lasso on Apple Plus TV. We love the first two seasons of this. uh, I think it's a really funny, of course, but heartwarming show, and they've kept us waiting and waiting and waiting.
2: But it's here, and Apple just revealed that the third season will start on March 15th. Um, So we have that distraction to look forward to. And we always urge people to watch this show. Um, Yes, it's built around a British soccer team, but it isn't really about soccer. It's about people and relationships and dynamics. And for those of you who have watched, I can simply say my favorite scene is the dart game. And we've got a link to that scene on our show page. So if you want to take a, a look. Yeah.
0: It's a classic. <laughs> uh, yes. And uh, Jason Sudeikis is so great in that. And the soundtrack is great, too. I love that. And the theme songs written and performed by Marcus Mumford. And along with the dart scene clip, we have a link to the trailer for season three of Ted Lasso on our show page. Transportation is always a topic that's central to our lives, and that's one reason I'm so happy to have with us this morning, David Zipper. David is a visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for State and Local Government. He focuses most of his time on the interplay between transportation policy and technology. His background includes everything from being a city hall administrator on business and economic matters to roles as a venture capitalist and startup advisor. He's also a prolific author. He's a contributing writer for Bloomberg City Lab, and you can also see his work in The Washington Post, The Atlantic, Slate, and Wired, among other places. David, welcome to River Radio. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. You've done some tremendous writing recently on a variety of transportation topics, and I want to start by talking about perhaps the most top of mind issue for lots of us, and that's the effort to expand the universe of electric vehicles. Uh, Let me start with just a general question first, and then I'll get into some other specifics you've written about. How is America doing when it comes to transforming from the dominant gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles?
1: Well, we are um, lagging behind our European peers, for sure, and we're well behind um, China, too. Um, and yeah, uh, you know, it's interesting, um, you know, President Biden has set a goal of really catching up with 2030 being his target date, um, which, by, by the way, I means he won't be president anymore, no matter what, <laughs> but right. by 2030, to have half of all new cars sold in the U.S. to be electric. Um, and, um, we, you know, we'll see if we get there. The, the electric vehicle sales numbers are creeping up um, but you know what i what i find striking and i've written about this several times most recently in the atlantic in january is that the way the us is going about electric electrification is is i think problematic because unlike um, china where the most popular electric vehicle is a is a a, a small vehicle that, that that could be really called a microcar and costs under $5000 now we seem to be focusing on electrifying the behemoths um, of of uh, trucks and SUVs that are so inefficient they actually could end up holding back our efforts to address climate change. So I um, I'm I'm I am dubious about the way the United States is going about electrification.
0: And I I do want to uh, draw or. Uh audience to your various articles you've written and I have a link to your website where people can find links to all of those articles and and it's there's really a a great number of them there that are really interesting and yes you referenced that article in the Atlantic that I was actually going to bring up next the title of that article is electric vehicles are bringing out the worst in us and I'd like you to talk a little bit more about why that is so problematic I mean we're really let's face it, it it as somebody who's had trucks before in my life, um, that Ford F-150, when I first saw it a couple of years ago at an expo somewhere, I went, oh, this is great. <laughs> but but yeah, I'm reading about the, there are a lot of shortfalls to this in terms of it being you know, something that's truly efficient.
1: Yeah, no, sure. I appreciate the question. Yeah, that Atlantic article was sort of the culmination of a number of things I'd been thinking about and writing about. And if the audience is curious all those articles are collected i have them together at um my at a website uh, davidzipper.com it's easy to find mm-hmm. but with regards to uh, the the challenges of of electric cars and how we're going about them in the us yeah the fact that, that you got to keep in mind that that ford 150 requires a lot of power to move a lot of gasoline to move right now and if you just stick in a battery it's still gonna require a lot of power to move. In fact, it will require even more power because batteries are heavy. Electric vehicles, because of their batteries right now, are gonna weigh roughly 30%, give or take, more than their gas powered models. And generating that electricity that they require uh, is gonna create its own emissions, especially if you're drawing from coal power plants and things like that. In fact, there's a study showing that the most sort of uh, you know behemoth-like electric vehicle the Hummer EV actually creates more emissions per miles than many gas powered sedans because it's so inefficient and even worse it's worth keeping in mind i think that ele- that those batteries you know every battery for an electric vehicle is going to contain minerals like graphite and lithium and cobalt that are in scarce supply worldwide And the bigger the battery, the more of that stuff that it requires. And in fact, there's again an an interesting study that I cited in the Atlantic piece that suggests that in a world of scarcity for these minerals, which we face right now, electrifying the most inefficiently large SUVs and trucks actually makes climate change worse because it comes at the expense of electrifying more efficient sedans or even much better, electric golf carts and electric e-bikes and e-cargo bikes. You can literally uh, produce you know, hundreds of e-bike batteries with the minerals it takes to create a single battery for the Hummer EV that weighs around 3,000 pounds as much as an entire Honda Civic. <laughs> so I'm very concerned about the climate impacts of these cars. And there's other issues, uh, without going too far into it you know, they also accelerate super fast, Um, you know, going zero to 60. These SUVs go zero to 60 at speeds we've previously seen only with sports cars that are gas powered, and it's not really clear why that's necessary. And it's but it is clear that that creates additional safety issues for those who are outside the vehicle. Uh, So I'm really concerned about what these sort of behemoth like SUVs and trucks are going to do both for road safety And for uh, for climate, I think it's a mistake the way the US is going about electrification by focusing on size.
0: And you talk about the Inflation Reduction Act that passed in 2022, and it was lauded at the time as as a major, um, uh, major legislation to address climate change, maybe the biggest piece that's ever occurred in our country but it includes a $7,500 tax credit for qualifying electric vehicles. And I know you see that that how it's structured is somewhat problematic.
1: Yeah, it was, to be honest, pretty disappointing to me when the Senate at the 11th hour stripped out what the House had passed as a uh, tax credit for e-bike purchases. Um, e-bikes can can, um, can really take the place of a car because they allow you to transport children, e-cargo bikes do, especially children or groceries. For short trips, they're far more efficient and less polluting than even an electric car. But the Senate stripped that away, and instead we were left with this $7,500 credit for electric uh, cars and electric SUVs, and even more of a head scratcher, honestly, to me is that there's a price cap of $80,000 for electric SUVs and trucks to get the credit and one of only $55,000 for sedans. So we're actually encouraging people with that higher price cap to get bigger cars. And I just don't understand why we would do that, given the shortage we have of battery materials and the fact that we are facing right now a 40 year high in pedestrian deaths in the United States. And there have been a number of studies tying that increase in pedestrian deaths. And cyclist tests too, to the growing size of SUVs and trucks and the shift to SUVs and trucks. So I just don't understand why, and given all of this, the Senate uh, and which and, and really, really the Senate, but Congress overall would be encouraging Americans to shift toward higher toward, toward, toward bigger um, heavier electric cars instead of smaller ones or better yet, um, you know, the uh, the the e-bikes or e-cargo bikes that are far more efficient and safer for others on the road.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know in one of your articles, and, and you, you mentioned the pedestrian death issue, and that is really kind of a puzzling thing, that that upward trend. But you talk about how Ford, going back to the F-150, could have uh, built that truck differently to make it a little bit safer in terms of the, the sight lines for the driver, but they didn't do it.
1: Yeah, that's right, because you don't have to have an engine in the front of an electric uh, truck the way that you do with a Ford F-150. So with the Lightning, you know, Ford could have created a more sloping front end so that if the truck strikes a, first of all, you have less of a, a blind spot. So it's more easy to see people who are in a wheelchair or a child who's in front of the car. Um, but but also with a lower front end, that vehicle in a, in a collision be more likely to hit a pedestrian's legs rather than their torso, uh, and it's it's safer to hit someone's legs because they're likely to bounce off the car and more likely to survive as opposed to striking their chest. Uh, before it didn't do that, they instead just sort of converted that that sort of newly empty space. They kept that newly empty space under the hood uh, empty. They just called it a frunk like a front trunk. And I guess I don't really blame Ford for that to a degree. I really blame regulators because there's no regulatory inducement from NHTSA, which is our traffic safety regulating agency, part of USDOT, Department of Transportation. There's no impetus from NHTSA or from Congress for Ford to consider the well-being of those outside the vehicle who, of course, are not buying that truck. And there's a number, uh, there's a we have decades of history in the U.S. showing that American car buyers are going to think about safety for themselves and not for those outside the vehicle. So we really need regulation to encourage people or force people to consider the societal impacts of their choices when they decide to get a a more or less safe vehicle. And we're just not getting that leadership, despite a lot of sort of uh, talks about the road safety crisis from Secretary Buttigieg and others at USDOT, they are continuing to ignore with regulations the safety risks of a car for everybody else on that street.
0: I'm in conversation with David Zipper, visiting fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School's Taubman Center for state and local government. And David, let's go back to that topic. You've made reference to the fact that America is building too many big electric vehicles. And you've written about the alternatives to that. Can you talk a little more, more about uh, microcars and things along that line?
1: Yeah, I mean, to, I think that the development of batteries and the advancement of batteries with lithium ion efficiencies is just phenomenal. And it unlocks so much potential for people to enjoy their commutes more often, their trips more more, to have a far lower carbon footprint, and to make our cities safer. But it's not by creating these giant sized electric SUVs and trucks, it's instead capitalizing on batteries to make the humble bicycle a really uh, an incredible device for transporting you to the place you want to go without being sweaty, necessarily, <laughs> or uh, uh, you know, or, or or having to worry too much about the element you can bring groceries more comfortably you can climb that hill more easily you can transport your children and you can do that in a vehicle that costs literally 10 percent or five percent as much as a new car uh so I think the rise of electric bikes and e-cargo bikes is incredibly exciting and it's not that everybody needs to go out and replace a car their cars. With, um with, with, with e-bikes entirely I know that's not realistic even in most people for most who living in cities in in Minnesota but you might decide, you know what maybe our our household can get by with uh one car with one car and an, and an e-cargo bike instead of two cars and that actually is phenomenal if we can live in in and we can make it possible to be less auto-centric less auto Reliant as a country i think that is so wonderful in terms of the quality of life the safety we can have the reduction in in emissions uh, um it's something that i believe that the advancements with battery technology really unlock and it's on all of us i think to consider how we can arrange for ourselves and our neighbors and our children to take advantage of the opportunities that micromobility is creating
0: and yet we have this uh, road culture here where you don't always feel safe, whether it's either on a bike, and we bike a lot, or whether yeah. it's uh, in, in, let's say in a micro car, if you were going to get something one of these small, you know, and I think about the smart car that's been around for a while, right and now, there's a, essentially electric versions of something like that. Um, it doesn't right. always feel safe on, on US roads.
1: Yeah, that's right, and I didn't even get into the micro cars or mini cars, which I've written about previously. The idea of a golf cart, the humble golf cart, being more than, than a recreational vehicle, but something you could actually use, even if you're not able to bike physically, use that to get around town. Uh, it is really exciting, um, and and that's another area that I'm 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 bullish on. But but uh, but yeah, it's it's kind of funny. I feel like um, it, it's sort of evidence to me of car brain. In the us that when I tweet or or talk about uh, how fantastic a a, a mini car can be as a way to get around town. I hear people say, Oh, but it's not safe, because imagine what happens if you're in a collision with an SUV. And my response to that is you're exactly right that SUV is unsafe. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the golf cart. It's not the e-bike it's the, the the danger is created by these enormous vehicles in in the streets that we've designed that allow those enormous vehicles to travel too quickly. So to me, the real, the real goal here needs to be uh, not like, you know, building fortress golf cart or telling people not to use them because they're unsafe, but rather creating safe routes or safe paths for them to be deployed, to get to where people want to go, to build those networks, or to just slow down all the traffic in urban areas. Because a golf cart is is perfectly fine if all the traffic around, around that person in the golf cart, or e-bike for that matter, is going say 20 miles an hour. You get the real problems when the traffic is going 45 miles per hour and that golf cart is still going 20 miles per hour. Now you've got a real discrepancy in force that could cause serious problems in a crash.
0: Right, for sure. Hey, uh, there's another uh, development in the transportation scene that I want to ask you about, and that is self-driving cars, because you wrote about this as well recently and about this fascination among some manufacturers to pursue the self-driving technology. You seem to think uh, that maybe that's sort of a folly.
1: Yeah, I don't really see the the where it gets us, to be honest with you. We really don't. And it's interesting. If you look at the history of the development of self-driving technology, it's really sort of like a G whiz, isn't this cool motivation leading it? Not an actual motivation to um to, to solve a societal problem, which is different, by the way, from the rise of um of cars 120 years ago when there were really serious problems with the horses that were ubiquitous across us cities in terms of the the manure and, and that was all over the place and the the the, the immense expense of of um of, of feeding and maintaining all those horses like the car really did provide some advantages there um i just don't see it with self driving cars um and and that's not the origin story that they have now the argument is that they're safer than human drivers there's really no evidence of that and in fact, self-driving cars will make mistakes that, Ameri- that, that human drivers wouldn't make because they have their own quote unquote blind spots, if you will. But even if you look beyond that and say, okay, let's assume self-driving technology somehow works perfectly. I actually think that's not necessarily a good thing at all because when things become easier, like driving, what do we do in response as humans? We want more of it. We end up, we'll want more driving if it's actually a lot easier to do. And if you, if you imagine a, a metro area with people driving a lot more and taking trips they would not have otherwise taken by car, that's a recipe for more congestion, for more emissions, even if these cars are electric, and for cities that are thriving less. Um, so I just feel like this is a very expensive distraction, this self-driving car focus from the kinds of, of improvements that could make our city cities and our transportation networks far more, more successful, such as, for example, investing in transit, building bike lanes, and even really mundane things like
0: improving uh, our sidewalk networks. Well, David, you've really given us a lot to think about this morning. I really appreciate that. This is this is excellent perspective on on everything. Uh, well, everything you write about it, I find all your articles fascinating. So, I really want to thank you for taking the time to be with us on River Radio this morning.
1: I look, it's really my pleasure, and I thank you for having me and. Uh and and i'll just say that uh like i said if if folks are curious about some of the articles i referenced uh, they can google them they can find them on my website but i always welcome feedback it's how i learn as well Uh, but thanks again for having me i appreciate it
0: absolutely and and david's website is on we have a link on our show page david zipper is a visiting fellow at the harvard kennedy schools taubman center for state and local government Hey, we want to say thanks to all those who attended our presentation on Thursday night at the Marine Village Hall about the bike journey scale and I have taken in Europe. It was really fun for us to go back down memory lane and share some stories and give some pointers for anybody who's looking to take on a similar type of adventure.
2: Yeah, and we are happy to meet a number of people who attended the event who we didn't previously know. A lot of bikers walked in the door. That was kind of cool. Hope they are checking out River Radio 2. A little less bike talk here, but plenty of interesting material to check out.
0: And thanks to the technical wizardry of our technical director, Matt Quast, a video recording of our bike presentation lives in infamy. We have a link to the replay on our show page.
2: My guest today on River Radio is Lori Schneider, who grew up in rural Wisconsin, the youngest in a uh, conservation-minded family, as founder of Pollinator Friendly Alliance, Lori turned a grassroots local group into a dynamic Minnesota conservation organization while she supervised research studies at the University of Minnesota on pesticide effects on pollinators. Lori was on River Radio last March, and we thought it'd be nice to check in with her again since summer is just around the corner, I promise. Welcome back to River Radio, Lori. Good morning, Gail. Thank you for having me. A pleasure to
3: be here. I love River Radio. I'm a big fan.
2: Thanks for uh, folks listening who do not know about the Pollinator Friendly Alliance. Can you tell them just a little bit about the organization's mission?
3: Sure. Um, so Pollinator Friendly Alliance, with which Gail had mentioned, start as a very small group in the St. Croix River Valley, and our mission really is to um, protect the environment through the conservation of pollinators. So, with anything in nature. Um, Everything is connected and relies upon the other. So we see pollinators as the keystone um, species that they are supporting all of life on earth. And the key programs that we work on are education and trying to teach people really to integrate life practices that affect all of what we um what we do in our daily lives even what kind of car we drive <laughs>
2: um well, let's yeah. get let's get right into those pollinators i noticed last summer that we didn't get many monarchs on our property and we border 40 acres of our neighbor's land trust land and i also noticed that the milkweed we planted on our property wasn't looking good i was kind of blaming that Um, on a lack of rain, which I'm sure is part of it, but I felt something else might be going on. Well,
3: there is climate change. And in Minnesota, um, we're well aware of the effects of it in the prairie restoration work that we do, especially. Um, In years past, uh, we've been able to install and manage a prairie uh, with, you know, a regular routine and expect to have plants germinate and come up for the next year but now because of the drought plants are really suffering and especially seeds are not uh, germinating as they normally would so you know it's weird to have drought in Minnesota right we've had that for the past few years and some people may say it's a trend but it it uh, scientists are talking about droughts being a regular thing as part of climate change Mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's harder to keep our uh even our native plants going
2: well there's been some milkweed studies too that have uh found out some not so good stuff about what's going on with milkweed um uh all the pesticides they're finding on them too possible that that could have affected our milkweed as well
3: well um, the university of Minnesota did a study while I was there, uh, five years ago. And most recently the Xerxes society just did another study the last year, um, to assess the drift, which was, um, attaching itself to milkweed and other native plants. So what we found is that each, uh, plant, regardless of whether it's native or not existing out, you know, in the ditches or in prairies or in your yard, even will have at least two pesticides on it. And we found up to 20 pesticides on one plant. Um, And milkweed in particular with its big, you know, paddle leaves that are kind of furry seem to attract more pesticides than the other plants.
2: So to the west of me, which, you know, that's where the wind would blow. I, You know, I like I said, I have a very nice prairie that my neighbor has um, maintained. So how far do these pesticides travel in the air?
3: Well, that depends, of course. But um, the, the problem that we're working on currently and is of most concern is the use of the heavy use of uh, pesticide-coated seed, which Mm -hmm. people don't think about a lot as a drift issue. But when corn, for instance, in Minnesota is one of the biggest crops, and a lot of that is pesticide-treated seed corn. um, And when it's planted, a lot of that um, coating drifts into the air and on the neighboring Habitat and it can drift up to a mile away depending on what the
2: wind is doing. Wow. So, how do we stop pesticide use, or have we screwed up the natural cycle so bad that farmers feel they can't afford to not use them?
3: Well, there's a lot of initiatives going on around the United States and in Minnesota uh, this year in legislation. We're asking for better rulemaking around treated seed and also we're asking that neonicotinoid, that family of systemic insecticides, which is used prolifically really in agriculture and in uh, horticulture, only be allowed to use in in agriculture. So that would eliminate a lot of use on those plants that we like to buy for our home use Mm -hmm. uh, in particular. But, uh, yeah, it's a big problem. And, uh, you know, years ago there Mm -hmm. were not pesticides and we figured out how to manage land and grow crops without it. So it's, it's really a more recent advent in the seventies is when it really
2: took off. Do you see it? Do you see a time when we, we get back to no pesticides or do you think that's wishful thinking?
3: Well, that would be nice, right? Everything could return to its natural state. Even the waters are contaminated. And now the recent studies show that uh, deer spleens in Minnesota uh, are contaminated
2: with neonicotinoids. Sure, because they're grazing the, the fields a lot. So... Um, Have there been studies done on organic farms to see how much their crops have been affected by pesticides from uh, non-organic farms that might be close by?
3: Uh, Well, there is an experimental farm in North Dakota, which has been doing a lot of work on that particular issue and related issues um, called Blue Dasher Farm. And it's run by Dr. Jonathan Lundgren. Um, and I don't know the particulars on the studies, uh, all the studies they've been doing. But if you're anyone's interested, check it out online. It's called Blue Dasher Farm. And there's a lot of great information there.
2: OK, we'll put that on our show page as well so people can check that out. Um, I'm going to ask about residential sprays. I, and I'm talking about your house is full of box elder bugs and you want to get the exterior um, sprayed. So that's also floating around. I'm assuming. Well, um, I haven't
3: heard of folks uh, spraying box elder bugs, and in fact, you know they they have a uh, they ebb and flow, and mm-hmm. of course they're not a, a really considered a, a a pest that causes damage to um, crops or anything. They're just kind of annoying to look at. So uh,
2: what about those spray, the sprays that are used to spray homes or to spray lawns? Um, How is that affecting our pollinators?
3: Yeah, so um, home insecticides um, are a problem. And in fact, the neonicotinoid insecticide that is in a spray bottle that's used on Home gardens is Mm. up to 40 times more concentrated than the agricultural sprays that are used. So it's quite toxic. And if you hit a plant with it, it's systemic. So it goes into the tissue of the entire plant and expresses through every part of it, including the pollen and Mm. the nectar. And it, it stays in the soil as well. So Um, they're also in horticulture, uh, the same neonicotinoids are used in greenhouse growing of plants. So you got to be careful when you buy a plant to be sure it hasn't been treated because, you know, oftentimes people are trying to help those butterflies and bees by planting flowers. And if you get a treated plant, it's hurting them rather than helping. So good to to ask your, your garden center if it's been treated first.
2: I'm talking with Lori Schneider, founder and executive director of Pollinator Friendly Alliance. Um, There's a state roadside habitat program called highways for habitat. Is that a new initiative?
3: It is. Well, we uh, started working on it two years ago, and there's a lot of stakeholders at the table for this. It's very popular. And, you know, it's not a new concept. These uh, highways for habitat uh, are already implemented around the country. Texas has a whole tourist industry, 800,000 acres of roadside habitat, and uh, Ohio, Iowa, Florida, Pennsylvania, and other states have already been doing it, but um, highways for habitat is in the legislature right now, and we really want to uh, capitalize on that right-of-way habitat that's uh, available to use for pollinators and migrating birds as well and nesting birds, Um because there's not a lot of habitat left for them. So uh, there's 135,000 miles of public lands along our roadside. So Mm. why not make that beautiful and also uh, an opportunity for our declining species?
2: Have you seen an upturn, though, in individuals that are are um, uh, getting, well, let's say, rain gardens put in or um, uh, pocket prairies in there? I mean, I know that there's a lot of organizations out there that are willing to give you a grant for that, from the Carnelian Marine Watershed District to uh, Tropical Wings has one right now for bird habitat.
3: Yeah, lawns to legumes, for example, has been very popular and it's, actually uh, gain national attention. Um, so Minnesota is seen as a model for the programs that it offers to residents. But, you know, in answer to your question, it's funny because, um, you know, it's kind of a dire situation that our pollinators and our environment is in. But um, I think awareness has really changed and improved over time. I mean, people are talking about native bees now and never really gave them a thought years ago so you know the rusty patch bumblebee is on our license plate
2: <laughs> right uh, yeah i saw one i had one in on a plant in um one of our gardens so i've only seen one though but wow awesome. yeah yeah so what's a good example that pollinators are coming back in greater numbers? If there's, if there are a specific pollinator you look at who determines that things are healthy or on their way to being healthy?
3: Well, um, the best example I can give you is if you build it, they will come. Mm. So if you uh, install a pollinator garden where there was not one before, you will, See results there will be butterflies and there will be bees okay. uh, yeah so it works
2: uh, can we touch a little bit on no mow may some folks have seen signs for that um uh, but some people might not want to do it because it makes their lawn look kind of out of control so is there some kind of compromise for no mow may like mowing the edges of the lawn and the sidewalks to define the borders well, you know, I
3: like what David said about car brain. So I'm going to use that, ter- that term and apply it to turf brain.
2: <laughs> mm, okay.
3: <laughs> because, you know, that's a very old idea that came over from Europe about having this green patch and it's really not sustainable. It requires a lot of maintenance. People put pesticides and herbicides on it and it really doesn't provide any habitat or uh, filtration for, to filter chemicals for the groundwater. So with, uh, with installing habitat or letting your grass grow longer, uh, there's so many benefits. For instance, just having longer grass with this drought now that's coming will provide some shade and shelter for the plant, the grass plant, And it requires less water so it can survive those drought periods. And personally, in my lawn, I mow it twice a year. And I like when it gets a little long, it bends over and it's so soft and it looks like a wave, sort of. So, Hmm. yeah, we encourage no mow and installing habitat. Uh, That is a national program that was started by. Uh, the Xerxes Society out in Portland, it's really taken off. So that's, that's great. But if it was up to me, it'd be no more summer.
2: <laughs> oh, okay. No more May. <laughs> well, are there grasses and flower mixes that we could seed our lawn area with that uh, both feed pollinators and grow to lower levels and don't need to be mowed or at least mowed, they can be mowed less often than just regular grass?
3: Absolutely. Um, And we have that information on our website, so if you go to our website, look under Habitat, and there'll be a whole section on how to grow your pollinator-friendly lawn. But in answer to your question, the fescues, um, a mix of different fescues are the best grass seed to use for this kind of lawn.
2: So you partner with other environmental organizations like the Conservation District, Washington County Parks, um, as well as, as um, land managers that care for public lands. So Pollinator Friendly Alliance is everywhere. You want to talk about your partnerships a little?
3: Yes, partnerships are key to the work that we do. Um, and I just have to do a little plug for our best practices for pollinators summit coming up for all of Uh, those people who want to learn a little bit more about installing a prairie or how to um, help conserve uh, butterflies. There's uh, biology and ecology, and that's in March, and you can find information on our website about it, March 7th, 8th, and 9th. It's virtual. But uh, in Washington County, we are really fortunate to have great leadership um in the parks district and also in the planning uh department with washington county because they're taking a longer look at how to manage uh land in our river valley area which means that we we can work with them and with the conservation conservation district to convert uh large acres of public lands into native prairie and habitat. And we have been doing so for the past five years um, in Pine Point Park and St. Croix Bluffs, at uh, Cottage Grove, Ravine and um, Lake Elmo Park Reserve. So it's a really successful partnership that results in increasing habitat um, more so than we could do individually.
2: I'm going to go back to your summit for one last question here. I know that's coming up March 7th and 8th. Is that in person or online or both? So this year it's
3: virtually and it's three days. um, And each day there's eight different speakers. So it's really an awesome um, opportunity to learn a lot of different things.
2: All right. Well, that sounds really great. Lori, thanks so much for being with us here on River Radio again. Always great to talk to you.
3: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
2: Lori Schneider is founder and executive director of the Pollinator Friendly Alliance.
0: Gail's got the news coming up in just a minute. But first, let me remind you that River Radio is brought to you by the Marine Community Library. We're very excited about two big events in March. And Gail, why don't you tell us about the first one?
2: Okay, the Marine Film Society with my partner, Paul Krieger, uh, we will be showing the five Oscar-nominated short um, documentaries. And that happens Thursday, March 2nd at the Marine Village Hall. This event is free And we've uh, mentioned previously, it isn't easy to find the documentary short screening anywhere. You'll find the animated and the live action shorts in the cities. So, So this is a unique opportunity to see the five short docs. It will be a longer program than most documentary nights, and we'll take a couple of breaks between the films. And one special addition to this Doc Night program, Anna Hagstrom from Anna's Bistro will have a cash bar with beer and wine available. And as it is Doc Night tradition, we'll have some complimentary goodies, too. So it should be a lot of fun. We're opening it up to everybody. It's a free event. Come on in and uh, we'll see you on March 2nd at Doc Night.
0: That sounds great. And then on Saturday, March 11th, we're holding our first fundraising concert in four years featuring one of our local legends, John Gorka. We're so thrilled to have John performing for the benefit of the library. And I think a lot of you know his stuff. He's a great singer songwriter. And of course, he's as much a comic as he is a a musical performer. It's, It's always fun watching his shows. Go to marinecommunitylibrary.org to find the link to buy tickets. They cost $40 plus a service charge from our ticket handler, which is not Ticketmaster, by the way. In addition, Honest Bistro will again have its cash bar set up with beer and wine, and will provide some complimentary desserts for folks to enjoy. That's John Gorka, Saturday, March 11th, a benefit for the Marine Community Library.
2: In news, Friday, February 24th marks the one-year anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine. That Friday evening, the greater Marine community is invited to gather for a time of poems and prayers for peace. The event will be hosted at the Gazebo Park in Marine starting at 5 p.m. Attendees are welcome to share a poem of their own or a reading of something that has been meaningful in recent months. The event will end shortly after dusk with a lighting of candles and hopes for peace in the year ahead. That's February 24th starting at 5 p.m. Everyone is welcome. Marine Village School is currently working on their spring production of Finding Nemo. In addition to the show on March 31st, the students will have artwork on display that the public can bid on and take home to decorate their walls. The Marine Mills Folk School, located in the Marine Village School, has some unique class offerings. On February 25th, there's a beginning crop art class taught by seven-time Minnesota State Fair Blue Ribbon winner Liz Schreiber. And on March 4th, you could learn to craft Dorset and Dead Death head buttons. These are wrapped button styles that were popular in England in the 18th and 19th century. Anyone is welcome to stop by the folk school for a tour during class hours, which are typically on Saturdays. And the Ice Out contest is up and running on the Marine Facebook page. And the rules to this marine tradition are really simple. Only one entry per person. And you must include the date and time of your prediction for Ice Out, which is determined by the Ice Out at Marine Landing. Entries close Friday, March 3rd. The grand prize is the best prize of all bragging rights.
0: And just want to remind you all to check out our show page. We have links to uh, David Zipper's website, which has all of his uh, recent articles. In fact, um, another one we didn't get a chance to talk about. He just put up on Slate about the uh, recall of Tesla this week. And uh, actually some very good points he made there again about how the government's coming up short in regulation on that. And uh, as Lori mentioned, uh, a number of things, we have the Pollinator Friendly website there and many other links as well. Uh, We will be back in two weeks. Our next show is Saturday, March 4th, 9 a.m. For those of you who like to join us live, watch for more information about our guests coming up on that program.
2: And thanks again to today's guests, David Zipper of the Harvard Kennedy School and Laurie Schneider of the Pollinator Friendly Alliance. Join us again in two weeks. And until then, remember, you heard it right here on River Radio.